Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show. Today, I am joined by Mr. Mullane, who is a former astronaut, went to space, also served in the Air Force. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jacob. I hope you are, too. I'm doing great. Where are you at today? I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque. Bright and sunny. Bright and sunny. Sunny outside as well, but very windy here in the Midwest, in Indianapolis, Indiana. So um, before we get into the questions and everything, we, would you like to talk a little, a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, you're in the questions, I guess, just you ask the question and I'll just follow your lead. Sounds good. So um, first we're gonna talk a little bit about what your life was like as a kid, what some of your dreams were, and um, you know what inspired you to later get into aviation and everything. Okay, well, I'll answer that question right now. Uh, I was born just after World War II ended and grew up in the shadow of that war. And that was important for me because my dad was in that war as an aviator and uh, he stayed in the Air Force after the war. And so we were, as my, myself and my brothers, we were always around uh, stories of my father about World War II and flying. And then uh, all the movies that came out in the 1950s uh, about the war, these heroic fighter pilots and bomber pilots uh, in World War II. And I was immersed in that culture of aviation. And so I grew up wanting to be a pilot, a fighter pilot. And uh, of course, there were no astronauts when I was that young. But uh, in 1957, Sputnik was launched. That started the space race. I was 12 years old when that occurred. And then I was all in on the space program. I wanted to be involved in it. I, you know, like everybody else, every other kid, I wanted to be an astronaut, but that was a nebulous dream. But the reality was, is I was focused on, on aiming my life toward being involved in aviation and rocketry. I was gonna, I was gonna work in that business, uh, uh, fly in that business. Uh, if I got to be an astronaut, that's wonderful. But I was very, very focused as to what my interest was, aviation and rocketry. That made that paid huge dividends for me in my young life too, because it's very rare for a child very young to know what they wanna be years later when they grow up. And I knew exactly what I wanted to be so I could focus all of my energy uh, on that uh, goal of, of getting involved in the space program and rocket planes and everything else I was seeing in the news. Any rate, um, as I uh, grew up, I, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, but I couldn't because my eyesight was too poor, excuse me, because my SAT scores weren't high enough. Uh, so I applied to West Point and West Point, the Army Academy took me, which uh, doesn't say a lot about West Point, does it, since the Air Force rejected me. But uh, West Point was a big, uh, that was a seminal moment in my life. I, it really made me from, changed me from a mama's boy to a man and graduated from, uh, from West Point to commission in the Air Force, wanted to be a fighter pilot, test pilot, and ultimately try to compete to be an astronaut. But my eyesight was poor, could not be a fighter pilot. So I was relegated to fly in the backseat of fighters, people who saw the movie Top Gun, remember Maverick and Goose. I was a goose flying in the backseat of F-4 Phantom Jets. Uh, went to Vietnam in the backseat of the Phantom over there. Uh, completed 134 combat missions over there, stayed it, uh, was in the Air Force for 23 years, had various assignments, uh, the Cold War forces over in Europe. Uh, but I also, along the way, got a master's degree in aeronautical engineering. And that was very important because it turned out I was going to need that if I was ever going to compete to be an astronaut. 
Still, that wasn't possible at that time because they only selected pilots to be astronauts and I wasn't a pilot because of my eyesight. But I did my best at whatever I was doing. I was gonna be the best backseater, the best aeronautical engineer. I was able to go to the backseater course of test pilot school. And then you know, I, got, I, was, I was out of test pilot school, the backseater course and stationed at uh, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida in 1976 when NASA announced they were selecting astronauts for the new space shuttle program. And they had a new crew position called Mission Specialist Astronaut that did not require you to be a pilot. So I immediately put in an application as a mission for a mission specialist position aboard the space shuttle. And in 1978, I was selected in the first group of space shuttle astronauts and went on to fly three space shuttle missions. So that was my pathway to getting into space. Wow, awesome. And um, of course, talking about it, what would you say were some of your favorite moments when you were in the Air Force? In the Air Force, it was, uh, I, I loved flying in the, the mission that I was doing with reconnaissance. So I was in the backseat of a fighter jet that was converted to be a reconnaissance jet. We didn't have any weapons on it. Our protection was to be alone, fast, low level, below the radar. And it was a very, it was a challenge, particularly at night. We did uh, in Vietnam a lot of work at night, which was very dangerous and mountainous terrain. Uh, we had a perimeter of uh, terrain following radar that uh, you could, <laughs> you could hope would work, uh, but it was, a, it was a challenge for me as a backseater to find the target uh, for the pilot to steer to. So I, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed the challenge of, uh, of that type of flying. But flying in, a, later I was in an F-111 fighter bomber, which uh, was an awesome aircraft. Uh, we would fly uh, at over the speed of sound and doing some weapons testing over the over Nevada desert. And boy, when you're down at 100 feet, 100 feet, sometimes even lower, smoking along at 700, approaching 800 miles an hour, man, you are, that is a thrill. That is a real thrill. So uh, those are some, some great memories. Absolutely. And then, of course, how did you get from the Air Force to NASA? We're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, I just covered about that pathway. I went in, uh, into the Air Force and was able to compete. I, would, I think it's important for everybody young out there to take away this message on that story, is the only reason I'm an astronaut or was an astronaut is because for 10 years, I did my best when I didn't think it counted. I was in the Air Force flying these missions I just described. I was uh, going to graduate school. I was going to the backseater course of test pilot school, but none of that at the time was gonna allow me to be an astronaut because I wasn't a pilot and to that date, 1976, NASA had only selected at pilots to be astronauts. And then they announced the mission specialist position that I qualified for. I didn't have to be a pilot. And the only reason I got selected was because I did my best as a backseater, as they uh, go into graduate school, go into the test pilot school, doing all of these things. I did my best when I didn't think it counted. And I'll tell every young person out there, it always counts. Everything you're doing in your life right now is going to count in your future. It's just you can't see your future. But there will be opportunities in your life that will develop that will, if you have done your best to that moment, you'll be able to take advantage of those opportunities and have great things happen. Uh, too many people just drift around. They kind of slack off. They don't do their best. And then you know, at, at age uh, 30, they decide, I know what I want to be. I know what I want to do. But now they're not qualified because, you know, they didn't 
do their best all those other decades earlier. So always do your best at everything. It's gonna count. That's a message to take away from that. And that's why I was able to compete to be an astronaut because for 10 years I did, did my best when I didn't think it counted. Didn't guarantee I'd be an astronaut, but allow me to be competitive. Absolutely. And I'm, of course, talking a little bit more about NASA and everything and space. Um, what was some of the training like? The training to be an astronaut, NASA has the greatest training program on the face of the earth. Uh, they have these incredible simulators at Johnson Space Center. Inside the cockpit of these, it's exactly like being inside the cockpit of a space shuttle. By the way, all the shuttles are retired now. They're in museums. I'm talking in the past tense here, even though I slip into the present tense. Uh, but at any rate, they had these great, great simulator, simulators that we would we would get in these. And uh, it, it initially starts with, okay, you go to, a, to a, a smaller simulation where you learn about the electrical system. And then you go to, you learn about the hydraulic system. And then you learn about the reaction control system, uh, the navigation system, computer systems. Uh, you learn about all of these systems separately. And then they have a simulator it's like I said, just like a space shuttle, you get in the cockpit, you wouldn't know you're not in a space shuttle. Uh, and that integrates all of these systems. And so now we would practice our launches with an, a sim instructor who would input malfunctions that would stress us in responding to allow us to learn the systems, how they work all together and overcome various emergencies. And on some of these simulations, we were integrated with mission control. So they, and it was just like we were in space, mission control is in, on the ground, and they have to deal with these emergencies that the simulator instructors are putting in, as well as we do to help you know, solve these problems. And, and they, you do that for hundreds and hundreds of hours, and it allows you to learn the systems down to a level that is <laughs> a very, very in-depth in level of these systems that hopefully uh, that knowledge uh, hopefully you'll never need that level of knowledge, but if you do, to save yourself in an emergency, you'll be prepared for it. Great, great system, uh, uh, training systems. We had uh, training for spacewalks. Uh, we had training for the robot arm. I, I was a robot arm operator on one of my missions, and they had this mock-up in the shuttle cargo bay, 50 feet long, 12 feet in diameter, had these gigantic helium-filled balloons, a cylinder of a helium-filled balloon to, to simulate a weightless payload. And I would practice with a robot arm lifting that balloon out of the cargo bay or putting it back in the cargo bay uh, to develop those skills. So NASA is world-class at training. Absolutely, I would agree with that completely. And um, what would you say it's like when you go to space, of course, when you take off from the ground, what is that experience like? <laughs> it's scary, uh, at, least, at least I was scared. I think anybody that's honest will tell you that it's scary. You fear for your life out there on the launch pad on a space shuttle. And, and the reason I say that is because the space shuttle had no, no escape system. It had to work. There was no bailout. There was no pod or capsule to, to, to bail out if anything went wrong. Uh, and so it's a complex machine. You know things can go wrong, but it's that knowledge that if it does, there's, you know, if it's really something very, very bad, you're not going to survive it. So when you're out on the launch pad, you're, you definitely fear for your life. But at the same time, you're going to be boundlessly joyful because it's a lifetime dream to fly in space for most astronauts. And with that at hand, you will be overwhelmed with joy. So it's kind of a strange sensation to be out on the launch pad, to be simultaneously scared 
and boundlessly joyful because that's exactly what I was, I was feeling. But anyway, when the liquid, liquid engine started on a space shuttle, the vehicle was still held to the ground by, uh, to the pad by explosive bolts. But when the liquid fueled engine started, you get this heavy vibration in the cockpit. And then six seconds later, after the computers check those engines, make sure everything's working, because uh, those can be shut off. If they're not working, they can shut off the liquid engine. Whereas when the solid boosters ignited, there was no going back. You were absolutely committed to flight at that point. So you have six seconds with these engines uh, running while you're being held to the launch pad uh, by these explosive bolts, assuming they pass their checks at T0 liftoff, uh, those explosive bolts uh, explode apart, uh, the solid boosters ignite and you're slapped into your seat with about a, a two, two G force, close to a two G force, two times gravity. Uh, as the rocket goes higher and faster, you get shockwaves forming on it. So it's you're bouncing around inside it, and a lot of noise, vibration. But then at two minutes up on the shuttle, the boosters separated. They burned out and were separated. You'd hear a bang. You'd see this fire across the windscreens as these things were explosively blown away. And then like a light switch got dead quiet for the next six and a half minutes. We were continuing to space on the three liquid fuel engines. But from here on up, it's very smooth, very quiet. The only way you could tell you're moving besides looking at your instruments where the G-force is slowly rising on your body. And those will ultimately stabilize at three Gs, three times the force of gravity. Eight and a half minutes up, the autopilot uh, shut down the engines. Uh, the gas tank was empty. That was jettisoned. And we had two small rocket motors at the back of the shuttle with some gas in the tail area of the shuttle for those. We fired those rocket engines, give us a couple hundred miles an hour more to get us into our orbit. Uh, and now you're off to do the mission, whatever that might be. Such as going to the International Space Station or something like that. Right, well, I never went to the space station because I let, I flew in the very early of the early shuttle program. You could probably tell I'm kind of an old astronaut. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was in the early shuttle program and we did not have a space station at that time. So I never went to the space station. Uh, we, on the shuttle, we, I flew three missions. My first mission, we carried three communication satellites up to check out and release. Uh, my second mission was a military mission. I used the robot arm to, to release a military satellite into space. That's all I could say about that. And then my third mission was another military mission and I can't speak to that at all. Uh, so those are the, those are my duties uh, up in space. And between the, the work you're doing, you get some incredible views of the world. You'll, you'll never forget looking at, looking at the earth from a couple hundred miles above it. It's so, so beautiful. The black of space, the, the brilliant blue of the oceans, the brilliant white of the clouds. Those are the three primary colors you see up there, black, white, and blue. And it's uh, just breathtaking to, to look out those windows. Uh, uh, I can't, it, it's impossible to describe really. I, I don't think there are words that can describe what your brain is able to see and when you look out the window in space. And speaking of it and everything, of course, looking out the window in space and everything, getting into sort of our next topic, of course, is um, commercial travel in space one day was potentially SpaceX, Blue Origin, um, Virgin Galantic. What are your thoughts on all those? Do you think it's a good idea? And how long do you think it could be until we get people in the space such as, I know it's going to be a lot of money, of course, but how long do you think it could be until we see the first people go to space who are humans or an astronauts? Yeah, well, that's going to happen soon. But I tell you, let me give you a little background on that privatization of uh, space. 
when the shuttle uh, Columbia was lost uh, with the seven more astronauts killed on Columbia back in 2003, uh, that was, a, I think, kind of the wake up moment where everybody agreed the shuttle had to be retired. It was incredibly expensive to operate. Um, it, uh, and, and it proved dangerous uh, having lost two crews in the, in the 30 years it was flying. So the, uh, the decision was made at that point, the shuttle was gonna retire. Simultaneously, it was decided that NASA was gonna get out of the business it had been in since the beginning of the space race. Uh, and that is building their, you know, contracting their own rockets at, at, at enormous expense to the taxpayer. But NASA, the government owned those rockets. They only launched a few times on very specialized missions. It's incredibly expensive. Then NASA and the taxpayer owned this very expensive infrastructure that was sitting there most of the time unused. Very, very expensive. So NASA decided we're going to get out of that business. We're going to we're going to tap into uh, capitalism. We're going to give some seed money to some startup companies like Blue Origin and like SpaceX. They will develop their own satellites, their own capsules, and they can do whatever they want with their rockets and their capsules. They can launch uh, military satellites, communications, sell that service to, to the DOD, Department of Defense, sell it to the communications satellite market. They can sell it to tourists. They can do whatever they want. Meanwhile, when NASA wants to launch their astronauts, they will just lease the service uh, for their, their mission. So now the taxpayer doesn't have the burden of all that that expense as they had in the past of owning the vehicles and owning owning the infrastructure. So it was basically the capitalization of low earth orbit. Now, simultaneously with that decision, NASA was tasked under the old model of building the rocket, of owning it and owning the infrastructure for a super Saturn V moon rocket. And that's called the SLS. And NASA is, has been working on that. And in fact, the first SLS launch with an Orion capsule, hopefully will occur this year. Uh, it'll be unmanned, unmanned mission around the moon and back, but uh, hopefully that'll happen this year, certainly next year, if nothing, nothing gets in the way. The rocket business is always fraught with danger, no question about it. But at any rate, when they first came out with this model, I thought like most astronauts, and I think most people at NASA, that this is crazy, this will never work. The privatization, how, you know, it was one of these, you know, we couldn't, see any other way other than the way we always did it. You know, it's gotta be the way we always did it. There could be no other way to do it. And of course now, and I would have, you know, I, I absolutely believe that. I thought it was gonna be a total failure. In fact, 25 NASA legends wrote a letter to President Obama saying it was gonna be a total failure and to change his mind and not do it. Uh, but as it turned out, it was a stroke of genius because you look at now what's going on in space. It's such an exciting time. I'm all in on it. I am. The idea of uh, these, these, what SpaceX is doing in Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, I'm all in on it. It's keeping space out there, keeping the interest in it. And I think it's going to help propel us to Mars or to back to the moon and on to Mars much sooner than would have occurred if they had not privatized uh, that operation of low Earth orbit. Uh, but getting back to the moon and onto Mars is going to be NASA leading the charge with that, with that SLS Super Saturn V vehicle. Uh, as far as when uh, the, we're going to be launching people who aren't astronauts, uh, in fact, they've already, let me think, have they done that already? Uh, well, well, I can't recall if we've done that yet or not, but certainly SpaceX is going to be doing it. They have an entrepreneur who is going to be, uh, uh, who bought a, 
a SpaceX ride and he's bringing along three other people uh, to raise money for the uh, St. Jude's uh, uh, Children's Hospital. And that's going to be launched this year. And he's not an ad, ad, in fact, none of it, none of the crew there are trained NASA astronauts, uh, which, which really speaks to how, uh, how much faith uh, uh, SpaceX has in the automation of their capsules. It's no, they're not going to have somebody that's a trained, trained uh, uh, astronaut on that. But at any rate, I'm all in on it. I'm really excited about what I'm seeing out there. And of course, you're talking about them and everything. Um, do you think, what about Mars, of course? When do you think we're going to be able to get there? And of course, it takes a while. But when do you think that we could be launching something for Mars? A decade? I, I, I tell you, Mars is, I think, a long way off yet. NASA says they're trying to shoot for maybe around 2040. In other words, about 20 years from now. Uh, <laughs> I'm 75. I'm not going to be around to watch. But um, the, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that's, it's incredible. Let me put it this way. It's all about money. If there's enough money, we could get there in 10 years. Uh, but you know, it, it costs a lot of money to do something like that. And we're not on the same footing we were with the space race of beating the Russians to the moon. So that money is not likely to come uh, it, it, so fast and in such quantities as to allow us to, to get that done, get to Mars in a reasonable period of time. I think it's gonna be a couple of decades out in the future. I, 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 I've been surprised with what SpaceX is doing. I don't know, maybe SpaceX will pull it off before NASA can do it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, again, though, it's it's a tough nut to crack going to Mars. Uh, you think it's better part of three year round trip. And uh, so everything you touch today, imagine taking three years of it. Imagine being in a small capsule with maybe uh, four or five other people uh, for three years. I say a small capsule, it'll be bigger than that. It'll, they have, it'll, certainly be a bigger volume, but still you're gonna be trapped inside something artificial for better part of three years. Um, it, it's gonna be a tough, tough nut to crack just from the human point of view, of getting humans humans safely there. Forget Absolutely. the machines to do it, just, the, just what we are as humans. And then the day operations, of course, at Johnson Space Center and everything like that. And of course, there's two more questions I do have is, um, what do you think about the Space Force? I, I'm a big believer in that. At first I wasn't, but you know, the reason you need that, I was in the Air Force and I flew military missions that now the Space Force was gonna do. And I thought, well, why do we need a Space Force? And the reason you need it is because if you don't have four stars, somebody with four stars on their epaulets sitting at the meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff going through budget, uh, and that, if you don't have somebody representing the space, the space operations with four stars on it, they're not going to get the, the money that they that they need. I think it's important to have somebody of equal rank to all the other, to the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. I think if you need that that Space Force four-star general sitting there and lobbying for their part of the budget uh, to 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 do the the space operations. So. I think that's that's the way to go. I think it's a great idea that, that we have the Space Force now separate from the uh, US Air Force. Um, I forgot what, did you ask another question there? That's the one other one I just want to say, of course, just for, because a lot of classmates, of course, always wonder this one. What do you think about UFOs and aliens? Uh, I get that a lot. That's probably the top question I've ever asked. Well, fake moon landing is another one I get. Uh, what would you say, if you don't, if you don't we mind, didn't fake the moon landing, pardon? 
What would you say to all the people who don't believe that the moon landing ever happened? What would you say to them? Well, I tell them that they need to read their history and that to, there's an expression. Uh, I think it was uh, Benjamin Franklin who said, uh, two people can keep a secret if one is dead. And I say that because these people who talk about this incredible conspiracy that NASA organized in to fake the landing, you would have tens of thousands of people that had to participate in this conspiracy. And not a single one of them has come forward and, and slipped you know, with his tongue and said, oh yeah, we faked the moon landing. I'll tell you how we did. No, nobody's ever said that. It's, it's ridiculous to believe that tens of thousands of people can keep a secret. And Absolutely. that's what would be required to say we faked the moon landing. Another reason, another good argument on this. Remember, it was a race to the moon. There was a winner and there was a loser. Obviously, the winner was America. Who lost? Russia. Russia. Now, do you think Russia, with all of their vast intelligence resources, with all their resources, would have allowed the United States to okay, steal exactly. that trophy by faking it? Do you really think Russia would sit by there and say, yeah, 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 okay, we're not going to say anything about it? And uh, what did Russia do when we landed on the moon? They sent a, sent a telegram or a letter of congratulations to the United States for getting there, for winning the race. So it's ridiculous to believe that, that we ever fake the moon landing. And, and you know, I just shake my head at people who can be victimized so easy by just something they read on the internet. Be yeah. a critical thinker, folks, a critical yeah. thinker. And one last one, of course, was just a UFO question. I the UFO, I personally, I've never seen any UFOs or aliens. Do I believe there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Yes, I do. Uh, I just don't think, I mean, I say that because the, the universe is so huge. It's Very big. Just, yeah, and so many trillions of stars that it's easy for me to believe we cannot be alone with that number of opportunities to have intelligent life developing on planets around some of these distant stars. But that said, I don't think they've come to Earth to visit. I think if they do, they will land and make a significant unambiguous contact. But that is not science. That's not, that's, uh, that's an opinion. And everybody, everybody out there is entitled to their own opinion when it comes to the alien UFO question, because nobody can either prove or disprove it. So Absolutely. have at it, whatever you want to believe there, but Thank definitely, you. definitely never believe that we fake the moon landing. Absolutely. Any of my classmates I've ever said, talked to an astronaut and I can tell you personally, we made it there. Which okay. Um, thank you so much. And then just one other one. Did you ever get to donate to people from the Apollo missions? I'm sorry, what? Did you ever get to donate to astronauts from the Apollo missions? Did I meet any of them, you said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, many of them. Well, many of them. A lot of them have passed away now. Uh, but yeah, um, there was probably, let's see, there are probably three, uh, three or four I don't know, three, three moonwalkers in the astronaut office when I got there. They were rapidly leaving. Uh, but there were there were a couple there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and thank you for your service in the Air Force. And all thank you, Jacob. America. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob, and good luck with you, and good luck out there to all all the viewers. Bye bye. Thank you.